everyone. Welcome back. This is our season two of the Alan Smithy podcast here on Pro Video Coalition. We had season one with my good friends, Katie Henson and Michael Thomas, where we talked about a lot of stuff in the media creation space and production and visual effects and just a whole range of things. And as always, I learned very much when we have these conversations. Katie, welcome back from summer break. I hope you were well and had a great summer. Thank you. I did. Michael, same with you. You took a, I think both of you took a little bit of vacation time, which is really good. So refreshed, ready for a big fall, right? Let's do it. <laughs> I don't want to have a big fall. Well, no, I want to have a, an eventful autumn season, but not a big fall. There you this, go. Is, this is correct. My there phone will call the police or something like that if I have a big <laughs> fall. So I think the big thing to talk about is probably not the Apple Vision Pro first, but would be the strikes because that is anybody kind of working in and around Hollywood media creation. If you watch television or go to the movies, you're somewhat affected by these strikes or will be soon. So as I'm in Nashville, so I'm not on the coast, I don't keep up with it. I am not in any kind of union other than just sort of reading the headlines a little bit more. So Katie, can you give us an update on where we are as of this recording? We're recording this on Sunday, August the 13th. So when this comes out in a couple of weeks, things may have changed, but where do we stand now? Sure. Today, I believe we're at 103 of the strikes. Started with the Writers Guild and then SAG after the actors joined in. There are pickets uh, across not just Los Angeles studios, but also in the major hubs like Atlanta and New York. And it's been getting tense. It started out pretty chill. I think once we got to the double strikes, things got a little tense and a little intense. Some of the rhetoric changed. I think in the public view, it became a little bit more of a representation of society overall and class struggles a little bit. To be honest, I think a lot of the rhetoric is part of what is a challenge in negotiations because it can be hard to come back from that when you've really got a lot of the public's general anger about the state of things generally, yeah. it can be a little hard to turn around and go, okay, we're cool now. So as we are this weekend, I can tell you that the WGA are considering the current AMPTP counteroffer. They've been going back and forth. So that's promising. That's really good. I think folks within the business are saying, hopefully we'll see it resolved by Labor Day. It would be a great milestone to have something resolved on Labor Day. But if not, there are some folks talking about it really going into the new year. So we're really hoping that's not the case. It's really impacting a lot of folks. Michael, what are you seeing? I'm sticking from a little bit of a different perspective. And as someone who spends a majority of my life online, whether that's good or bad, is that there's <laughs> been blowback that this is a symptom of high price actors wanting more money. And what I think a lot of folks don't realize is that an overwhelming majority of folks out there who are writing and who are actors are barely making or barely getting enough gigs when the economy is okay and there's no one striking. And it's not about rich actors and folks who are working on big TV shows getting richer. It's more for the people who are working actors and working writers who are just trying to make a livable wage. And I think a lot of folks disregard that and think it's just the kind of high level folks. And Katie, you have a thought on that? Yeah, look, I think it's a very difficult situation because there's a lot going on that in terms of what needs to be resolved is a difficult thing to resolve. I don't think it's as simple as it, it usually is, which is here's how much money we want and a counteroffer to that and a counteroffer to that and you find somewhere in the middle because some of the things that are really the sticking points between the studios and the writers and the actors are very difficult things to figure out how to resolve. So for example, the residuals question is an interesting one because in the streaming world without commercials, <laughs> the how much money or profit the distributor gets from the eyeballs that are watching a specific show at a specific time is not the same without commercials. So it can be a really difficult thing to mm. say, okay, so did you sign up for Netflix just to watch this one show? And even if you did, you paid $12 for that. What part of that would go to that creator? And so what the streamers have actually been doing traditionally, and I think this is one of the things that a lot of folks, some folks know and some folks don't, is when they acknowledge that the residuals are not as straightforward with for advertising, instead what they've started doing was giving folks 20% on top of their rate upfront. 
So whether your show, nobody watches it or it's the biggest hit of the year, the idea is that it averages out to about 20% of your rate in residuals. And that was how they decided to do it. So if you're massively successful, you make millions of dollars. If nobody watches your show, you'll get nothing. They sort of averaged it out to 20% and said, because most people would probably get around that and that would be not a bad deal. So what is being negotiated now is that folks are asking for on top of the 20% to get an additional residual if it's an extremely popular show. But if you're talking about percentage of profit on that, it can be a difficult thing to measure. And I think a lot of what the argument's about is how do we measure that? And that's actually what is going on largely, as far as we can tell, in the negotiating room right now, is how do we determine how much to pay somebody if the show is a big hit? And at what point do we call it that? At what point do we say, this is how we can prove that Netflix made an extra billion dollars off this one show and things like that? So, Yeah, I I never thought about the idea that back in the old days, there were commercials. And now with streaming, there is no commercials. It's all subscription-based or much different metrics and much different financials as far as how it how they figured this stuff out. But one thing like this has not has surprised me, but if you think about whenever there's a strike, it's usually like the, the workers against the executives, the C-suite against the corporation. And there's no doubt we're in a time when corporations have a lot of power and influence in the United States, at least a lot around the world, but especially in the United States. It, was it shocking to people when these contracts came along and they were so favorable to the corporations? Because it sort of feels like the corporations are going to do whatever they can do, and they're going to make an attempt to make all the money they can, employees, in a sense, be damned. So they put out these weird contracts. Like I saw one where something about if they can scan a background actor and they can use their likeness forever in perpetuity in any project, which seems insane to even think about why would they propose that, but why not propose the shoot for the sky and then come back to reality? But it feels like that the companies have not tried to come back to reality, hence the strike. Well, that specific clause was... There was a report, I think it was uh, Deadline or Variety that put this out, that there was sort of, here's what one side is saying, is what is on, and this is what the other side is saying, is this clause that they're saying. So I, what that one about the background actors, there was certainly a rebuttal from the MPTP that that was a misunderstanding of what they were actually asking for. And but they always say that, oh, you well, that's not sure. really what we wanted. Sure. You didn't understand it or, yeah. Maybe so. And I think the thing is that none of us actually know what is happening in the room. Don't believe anything you hear on the internet from either side of it. There is certainly yeah. two sides to every story. And I do understand that wouldn't be fair. But, I, but even a comment such as, we'll just hold on until they start losing their houses. I wonder if that, that was wasn't, even true. That, no, that wasn't true. That's okay. been largely debunked. Yeah, Even like partly true. No, that's been largely debunked. That was okay. a while ago. And I think that's the thing. There's been a lot of stuff floating around on Twitter, as there is with every argument. I'm sorry. It's called X now. Oh, yes, indeed. Not Twitter anymore. <laughs> Michael, what do you think? <laughs> I, obviously, I'm seeing this from a little bit of a different perspective, and yeah. I'm not saying this to influence either side of the strike, because I would like the strikes to end, and I would obviously like everyone to get their fair dues, is that the struggle runs downhill. And what I mean by yeah. that is the companies that provide technology to people who work in post or even production, they're hurting. Because yeah. the work isn't getting done, the software is and hardware isn't needed to complete those projects. So now we see post facilities saying, look, we're going to have all of our editors go contract or we're going to do a hiatus. For like someone like me who works in kind of the SaaS, right, SaaS arena, the software as a service, we have terms like churn and attrition. And what we're seeing is that folks, companies are contacting various companies and saying, look, we've got to cut our budget somewhere. We have to, instead of using five or six disparate tools, we need to find one or two that handle everything, even if it's not the best, because we have to constrict our monthly spend. And we also don't know what's going to happen in 30 days or three months or a year. So we can't commit to anything. So we're seeing a lot of companies saying, look, we just don't have the budget to keep paying for these types of things, as well as paying editors or paying post folks like they used to, whether it's feast or famine, they would continue to pay them. We simply don't have that any longer. So this really trickles down to every other portion of this industry. 
Yeah, and that was the letter from the HPA, the, the open letter that came out this week, an open letter of concern for the survival of the media creation supply chain, which is a very HPA title. I think it's an interesting one to read. It is passing comment on that there is a concern that we are starting to see mass layoffs at companies that are adjacent I suppose we're seeing them at agencies, large agencies. We're seeing them at post companies. We're seeing them at, at the vendor places. People are talking about furloughs and some of these companies if they're not doing layoffs. And I think there's a very legitimate concern that some especially smaller businesses won't survive if having come out of the pandemic barely <laughs> that and really just starting to come back that an extended period of no work is going to really have an impact on a wider swath of the industry. And if these companies don't survive, that when everyone wants to go back to work, there won't be vendors to support them. And so that was HPA's concern. Their open letter was essentially to all sides of the negotiating table to get your shit together because we all need to get back to work. So I think the vibe everywhere is people aren't necessarily taking sides. People just want it to be done. They just want them to go back and negotiate and talk like grown-ups and find a way for everybody to get back to work. Everybody's hurting. The people who are striking, the people who are trying to keep working, who are not part of the strikes, I think everybody just wants to get back to doing what we love and to doing our jobs and paying the rent. <laughs> yeah, I think I do take a little bit yeah. of issue. I mean, I'm a member of HPA. I like HPA. What I don't necessarily agree with, and they cover themselves with uh, one of the last sentences here, mm -hmm. without a near-term resolution, and this is me quoting the HPA letter, without a near-term resolution, there is significant risk to the ability of our industry to easily recover. And that's downwind of saying people may not go back to work. Yeah, but there will always be replacements. And I hate to say that, but there will be people who may not be as good or as experienced, but there will always be people and technology will fill that gap. It's just going to be a new way of doing it than how it was done before. But isn't that letter a good reminder of the collateral damage that happens when you have a strike? Because with this strike, we mainly think writers and actors, but with any kind of strike, remember when we almost had the railway strike? I saw a like a flow chart of if the railway strike happens on Monday, here's what will be affected by Thursday and then by the following Thursday. And it's all that collateral damage, I think, that people often don't think about. And I didn't necessarily think about too much till I read that HPA letter. I'm like, oh, yeah, it is about way more than just... The, the it, is, and, and it, is, it is worth noting though that strikes are supposed to cause disruption. So strikes are supposed to mess things up. That's the point of strikes. And it puts pressure on everybody. And that's the point, right? Strikes are, a, are always a last ditch attempt at trying to put pressure where it needs to be put. And admittedly, I think there are a lot of parts of the industry, a lot of groups within the industry who are bleeding and pressure needs to be put on that wound. I think also timely is the VFX artists. I've been saying for years that VFX artists need to unionize. However, of course, coming from that world, it is a very difficult situation. It is not as simple as it is for other parts of the industry for VFX artists to unionize because they are beholden to the companies they work for. They work for companies and those companies are able to and more than willing to outsource to overseas. And the clients, the studios and the productions that hire them don't even know how much is being outsourced. Let me ask you a question on the VFX union thing, Katie, because the thing that I see most about the idea of a VFX union comes, again, from Twitter X, when a big movie will come out and then there will be a VFX artist who has a tweet talking about outlining the sweatshop type hours they had to work to get this film oh, out. 100%, yeah. Yeah, and it feels like that always happens on every big VFX movie. And mm -hmm. you read something like that and you think about that is you know almost like slave labor. It is. And it's a very small thing. And then you think, oh, VFX needs a union. Is that simplifying it too much? No, or? no it, not necessarily. I think on the coalface, that is exactly how it is. I think the reality is it's not as simple as it is for folks in post or even actors and writers where their work can't be outsourced easily. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the big issue. And outsourcing has become not just a trend, but the norm. And there is not a lot of overhead 
for the owners of the VFX companies, right? And so the way to increase profits is to push harder and then outsource a bunch of stuff and then, again, also using technology to automate a bunch of stuff. Now, automating a bunch of stuff helps take some of the pressure off, uh, but the outsourcing is really key to it. So I think we're all reasonably familiar with our sales folks screwing us over a little bit. I think really what it comes down to is there's a lot of over-promising from sales as in, in undercutting because there's a lot of competition in the market. And undercutting and over-promising is something that sales does all the time, as we know. Mm-hmm. And to get the work. Ex- exactly. Everybody wants the job. And then when they do that, they are putting a lot more pressure on artists to work those very crushing hours. And the wages aren't going up. Because if you don't want to do the job, they'll send it to Korea, India, those places. So from my experience working in the world of visual effects companies, that has often been the case. You don't want to do it, then we'll just send it somewhere else. Um, And those profit margins have been razor thin for some of those like third party VFX companies I've read, I'm sure. Sure. And again, there's third and fourth and fifth party VFX companies. And it's very common to say, look, if we can't do it on this budget, then we'll subcontract it. So oftentimes the budget will come in and we'll say, here's what we've promised we can do. And then the actual soups and artists go in and they look at it and they go, well, we can't do that for that kind of money because we have to pay people minimum wage. And so they go, okay, cool. Well, let's go find somewhere in that can do it for that price. And so they shop around to other countries where the value of the dollar is different, there's tax incentives, the rates are lower, and and then they will subcontract it. And then you'll just have the face of the work being stateside, and but the actual artists happen to be somewhere else. And the client, the studio or the production doesn't necessarily even know because they have hired a US or a Canadian company um, mm-hmm. and but it's largely being outsourced. So I think that world of how VFX companies work, it makes it very difficult for folks to say, right, we need to unionize because what that does, that then drives up the costs and pushes even more outsourcing. So it's a little more complex. And I think it's important that we start somewhere. We find an easy win an easy way to start unionizing VFX. I really truly believe that VFX needs to be unionized having come from that world. And again, there are com- there are places in the world, in fact, where I'm from in New Zealand, where they banned VFX people from unionizing. Wow. So that, that seems like, an- I won't say anti, well, no, it wouldn't be anti-capitalism. It'd probably be pro-capitalism. <laughs> but I guess outsourcing has been going on for a while, but not always. And this discussion seems has been going on for years. Like why has it been so hard to unionize VFX or even have a big discussion about it. That's why. <laughs> Essentially. Well, like, I don't know. I, I guess you see them, people trying to unionize an Apple store or like a Starbucks and it does. You it, can't it does outsource take a lot that, right? You can't outsource yeah. that. You can't order a coffee and have somebody make it in another country for one cent and then send it back to you. But you can yeah. certainly do that with visual effects. You know, Michael, you remember when Rhythm and Hughes, after Life of Pi, there was all that talk about Rhythm and Hughes closing. Do you remember that? Yeah, it's hard to believe that was almost a decade ago, but a lot of the things that we're discussing right now are chronicled in that. And for folks who aren't familiar, back in 2014, Life of Pi, I think, had won an Academy Award. And at the same time, the company was declaring bankruptcy. The company that helped this movie win that Academy Award was declaring bankruptcy. And there was a YouTube documentary called Life After Pi that kind of chronicled how that happened and the fact that VFX companies were bidding on projects where they weren't making enough money to pay everyone, but it was better than not getting the job at all. And they talk about the systemic issue within the VFX industry of the overpromising and underdelivering and the unreal expectations that are coming from studios. And thus, as you pointed out, Katie, the sales team at the various VFX post facilities. So if you haven't checked it out, it's called Life After Pi. It's on YouTube, and that'll give you a good foundation uh, of where we are today with the VFX industry. And that was a long time ago. I don't know. I guess Google could tell me when Life of Pi came out, but that's been, it been 2013 and 15 mm, years. Like 2013 15 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. So there's been obviously some news recently about Marvel VFX unionizing. And so that's not VFX artists. Marvel doesn't employ VFX artists directly, but it is the folks on the shows who are on set. 
So it's VFX coordinators, VFX supervisors, data wranglers, webcam operators. And I think it's a really great first step towards showing that we can start having some sort of equity for VFX. I mean, every little bit helps. Those are the folks that are, they're part of the production and they are the only folks on set who aren't union. So the, all the camera department, grips, the gaffers, sound, actors, everybody else is in the union but the VFX folks. And that can actually cause them some issues around what they can and can't do. And it can be a little bit tricky, especially, again, and there's folks working union hours and then they're not. And all of these things get a little bit complicated. So that's a really great entry point for starting to at least get some folks covered. But I think there are two different discussions and we shouldn't conflate the two between that group unionizing and the larger VFX industry and the challenges it faces right now. It's a brutal industry to be part of, to be honest. I've never thought about DITs in union. What de- They're in the camera. I haven't thought about what department they fall under. They fall under the camera, camera. but yet all the camera department is unionized. Except Correct. The, uh, and DITs are also union. Oh, they are. Sorry, I thought you said yeah. that they were one of the non-union, one of the few non-union. No, the, the VFX wranglers. Oh, VF. Okay, different than, so wait. What's the difference in a v- DIT wrangler, like a data wrangler and a VFX wrangler? One one does the VFX only and the other does everything else. <laughs> right. But like when you say, you mean the capture of what of any media that will be used in VFX versus no, like what? No, there's different metadata that the VFX data wrangler takes in. And essentially okay. it's a lot more to do with that. And so they are really oh. taking from the script. There are shots that are VFX shots. They need to capture additional metadata, HDRIs. They get the little shiny balls. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And they capture all that metadata. And there's all sorts of other things that they actually need that editorial and everybody else doesn't. So oh, they're okay. also dealing with that. And then they're also potentially taking sometimes the shots that come in and saying, these are VFX shots, tagging them as plates, making sure you've got everything. So that's really another side of things. And I, I apologize to all VFX data wranglers for my explanation of your job. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> well, like thinking about yeah. the difference in that kind of data wrangling and just like a, your traditional DIT where you're backing up the cards and all the footage right. that was shot, like they are two totally different. Yeah, I never really have thought about that as two different things, but this the whole world that seems to be underrepresented. Union right. Members, I mean, yeah. you've got camera operators and then you've got witness camera operators and the wit cam operators are part of VFX and the, and, but the other camera operators are not. So things like so wait, that. What kind of camera, for those uninitiated, what kind of camera is that? So wit cam, again, for visual effects on set, you'll have cameras like witness cameras. So it's essentially a camera that captures the whole set and what's happening all the time. And so all of the data that might be needed about the position of characters and props and people and things is all captured for the ability to add things, remove things, move things around, do motion capture, all of those other things that might need to be done. Thanks for that explanation there. But you threw a few terms out there that I did not know. So as I said, I learned much from these podcasts, recordings, and that was one right there. But now, okay, this is a pivot, but the talk of VFX, it seems like this summer we've had a couple of big films come out, one in particular that sort of trumpeted the fact that they have very little VFX in them. One of which was made, you know, it was a lot of close-ups. I get that, but I don't think any film can truly claim no VFX in this day and age. It's like what, Katie, what was your thoughts on, on the note? Oh, there's very few VFX in this film. I'm like, eh. We heard a lot of there's no VFX in Oppenheimer. Oh my God. Yeah. Okay. What did you actually blow something up? I honestly, it pisses me off and it's pissing off a lot of people, that whole thing. It's really disrespectful to the artists and folks making those kind of claims should know better. You, we could just as easily say, the director doesn't do anything. The camera operator shoots it. The DP shoots it. The editor cuts it. What does the director do? I mean, to be honest, it's just as disrespectful. You look on the credits and there are hundreds of visual effects artists, yeah. really talented folks on all of these shows. Now, I understand that there is a move that some folks love to do, like practical and camera stuff. I think that's awesome. But the invisible work of visual effects artists is actually a huge part of every single film, whether it's talking heads, even documentaries, there are visual effects artists on everything. And I think this whole anti-CG, I think there's a few films with crap CG, so everyone's like, CG sucks. There's (laughs) anti-CG, there's anti-AI, machine learning, computers are bad, let's go back to old school. I mean, seriously, just because you use a computer doesn't make you 
not an artist. And I think that's a lot of what they're talking about around the visual effects. And I, it just, it pisses me off no end. You too, Michael, I'm sure. It definitely does. And I'm really interested in how does someone get away with saying we're not using VFX or we're using very little VFX? Is it because they're drawing a line that this is considered VFX and this, even though it was used with computers and it was compiling or compositing different things together, that's not VFX? How are folks getting away with saying this and not just lying through their teeth? Well, they're lying through their teeth. And you know what I think it comes from? I think it comes from this age-old snobbery with film folks whose heroes are theater and all of this sort of bollocks, right? And working in film tech, I've seen this for years. Really, our heroes should be games and Silicon Valley a lot of the time, right? I never forget when we were getting into this whole world of VR and whatever and some big director goes on and says, oh, we'll be able to have these sort of non-linear VR-based stories when we can figure out how to do non-linear storytelling. And I'm like, bitch, games have been doing that forever. Have you ever played Halo? Like, seriously, just it's the snobbery around what's real film and what's not. And I remember back in the day when the red camera came out and every director in Hollywood but Peter Jackson turned around and said, digital is video, film is film. Digital will mm -hmm. never be film. And it's that same snobbery that we're seeing today around digital is not film, film is film. It's honestly, get your head out of your ass, Mr. Film School, and <laughs> get real, get real. If film is a medium that is constantly changing and evolving, and if the story is engaging and the visuals are beautiful and the sound is amazing and all of that, if it moves you, it is film. Get over yourself. I mean, I think that in one sense, it's okay to sort of like still want to harken back to shooting on film and the old school way of doing things for a certain aesthetic. But this idea that it's almost a marketing tentpole oh, yeah. statement that, oh, we have no visual effects or we have no CGI when... Even, I think you, you mentioned something about like even two people talking in a scene, sometimes you're comping two scenes together. You've that got backgrounds, be... you've got cleanup. They didn't yeah. teleport back to the 1940s to do that scene. That's what they did at DD. Or, and that's you know, a visual or, effect. Or, yeah, that's a visual effect. And there's just this real sense of this snobbery around being a proper filmmaker. And, but then you're disregarding a large proportion of the crew that actually made that film yeah. and that's the thing about you can't call yourself a legit filmmaker and then disrespect and ignore a huge part of your crew that actually was part of the filmmaking process filmmaking is a team sport you got to be a team player about it. And I think that's really what it comes down to. I, you know, I understand this whole sense of we want to go back to basics and a lot of folks have done things old school way. And I mean, I worked on Taika Waititi's boy and that was done with a traditional finish. And we did visual effects in the lab on celluloid and it was super cool, but we still did visual effects and sure it wasn't mm. CG, but that's fine. I think you've still got to get over the fact that everyone's now saying that visual effects and CG are somehow bad and not part of filmmaking. They are. It's all part of filmmaking. Your whole team is included and you can't be so disrespectful to visual yeah. effects workers. They're highly skilled people doing incredible work and really making your film what it is. So... Well, yeah. they wouldn't look like they do about VFX. I just... To wrap this discussion up, back to the unionized thing, let's just hope that a VFX union can help the people like unions help people. I, I hope that potentially yeah. comes to happen. So another big piece of news that has just, it was rumored during the summer that Avid Technology, maker of Avid Media Composer and all the shared storage and Pro Tools and lots of other things I'm probably forgetting, might be for sale. And then I believe a week before we recorded this, it was announced that they are to be acquired by a private equity group. Now, Michael, I don't think there's anybody who ever hears, oh, a private equity group acquired this company that thinks something good for the company will come out of that. But you've been on the bleeding edge of trying to listen to all these rumors. So what, where are we at? What do you think is going to happen? You're right. Normally when private equity gets involved, shit, it's the fan and things change. And a lot of the values and things that have been said by the original company, we're not going to do end up getting thrown out in favor of whoever the sugar daddy is. And at yep. this point it's going to be symphony. 
I want to preface anything that I say about this is no insider baseball. And I need to say that because of my connections with Avid and other folks in the industry. And I owe my career, oddly enough, to Avid. When I went to college, I learned Pro Tools. And as a sound editor for the next several years, that's what I used. And then working in the reseller channel, I worked for companies that were making millions and millions of dollars on selling Avid and Avid-related properties like Pro Tools, Media Composer, and storage systems. So I have nothing but love for Avid, and I completely yeah, understand the roadblock they have, which is having to appease all the old, grizzled post-production folks, <laughs> yet still <laughs> trying to get new folks and not changing enough to upset the boat. That's so, his own That's his own little discussion we can have oh. or not have beyond <laughs> just uh, this sale to private equity. But anyway, I continue with your thoughts on where it's going to go from here. Jeff, the president of Avid, Jeff Rosica, is a fantastic person, great guy, immense respect from everyone at Avid. If you look at the stock price, which has gone up, I think it was in the 3 or $4 mark. Now it's upwards of 30 He's been able to do that in the last several years. So he's yep. done well by the company. But I think after 30 plus years, there was time for some payout. And if we look around at the industry as to what is taking hold, we see traditional broadcast and cable is declining. Online video is increasing. And a lot of the places where Avid in, with Media Composer is used, those are slowly dying. So I think it makes sense to say, look, we're going to get out while the getting's good. We've gotten the, the stock price up. I think downwind of this, we're going to see a major change in terms of Media Composer, the hardware, the software, and then Pro Tools. I'll hold off on that because I don't want to steal analysis thunder. Do you want to add some to that? Well, Media Composer, is, and this is an important one to, to mention because the world that I live in as a freelance editor, it's always talk about the NLE, and Avid is pretty much Media Composer to many people, but Media Composer is such a small part of Avid overall. The discussion and the thought that perhaps the company will break them up into maybe Pro Tools as its own company, maybe Storage as its own company. I think on the surface that makes sense. Pro Tools is huge. Media Composer is an industry standard for cutting as is Pro Tools for mixing and sound design. But I think, I guess would be that the Pro Tools world and the Pro Tools market is a lot bigger than the Media Composer market. So I really feel like that's could totally happen. I don't know. I was just thinking about Katie, give me an example. Do you know any private equity purchases that turned out okay for the company that was purchased? Certainly didn't turn out okay for Toys R Us. <laughs> well, that's, LiDAR that's not a media business. LiDARN was acquired by Panavision. Panavision is solely owned by private equity. So that worked out pretty well. I was actually there at the during the time of the transition. There there have been some cases where it's worked out well. Look, speaking to folks at Avid over the last few days, I think everybody's doom and gloom about them right now. Everyone's very cynical about what's going to happen to them. We've seen some cases where it hasn't gone so well and some cases where it has, but I think we remember the ones that it hasn't. The folks that I spoke to at Avid were were saying that what they've been told by STG was that they were looking to move to get into the M&E media entertainment space and saw the opportunity, that they are very optimistic and that they have been told that there will be a cash injection for them to sort of see what they can do with the technology. And mm -hmm. that's generally what does happen at the beginning of these relationships with private equity. They will say, look, if we give you some money to do some stuff, let's see what you can do with it. If you Can you turn this around? Can, can you do something interesting? Now, I think really when we're going to see what's going to happen is going to be in, in a couple of years' time, I think, is where they'll go, look, is this something that if we give them the money to do it, are they going to do something exciting? Are they going to be successful with that? Are they going to make this more high tech or more efficient or have a wider market or not? And at that point, they may look at breaking things up. What do you think, Michael? The line we like to use is, we'll give you enough rope to hang yourself with. Yeah, <laughs> and, totally. But yeah. you're totally right. PE is going to come in and say, what do you have in mind? Mm -hmm. What are the anticipated sales projections? How long will it take you to complete this? What are the anticipated sales projections for six months, 12 months, 18 months? Mm -hmm. And if you don't, then we start cutting. And that's when, as I mentioned, the traditional values or things Avid may have said, you know what, we can't ever do X, Y, and Z. Private equity says, no, that's the most underperforming. This is what you get rid of. And I'm really interested to see where Avid goes. If I had to read the tea leaves and looking at where the industry is going now, uh, I would guess within a couple of years, as you pointed out, Scott, uh, Avid Media Composer only has 90,000, 95,000 users globally. If we look at Pro Tools, it's multiples of that. Mm -hmm. And Pro Tools has been the, the crown jewel for Avid for years. And there's yeah. been many companies who have approached Avid about purchasing Pro Tools. And Avid has said, no, you have to take everything. 
I'll, I'll kind of leave it at that. Yeah. But huh. I can completely see if Avid isn't able to revolutionize again, yeah, that or innovate again. Pardon me. That Pro Tools is sold off, and as we've seen for years, Avid and Pro Tools working together have always been blocky anyway. So that wouldn't be a massive divorce, at least from a workflow standpoint. But but finally, but, they are working together better. Like finally, you can export a Pro Tools session from Media Composer. So it's taken them this years. long to yeah, make that happen, which is just sign. baffling. It's just that's, baffling. That's Digit Design, yeah. they have acquired Digit Design around 1990, mm-hmm. I think, mm-hmm. couple of, maybe 91 or 92. So it's only taken 30 years to say, yeah. oh, OOF and AF maybe yeah. aren't enough, right? Uh, yeah. I think what will happen, just to put this out into the universe, is the hardware that Avid is selling is commoditized right? Nexus storage is completely sitting on top of OEM hardware. I see the storage going away. Avid may be licensing their bin locking to third parties, which has been rumored for years, or just saying, hey, go buy your own storage. Your performance may decrease, but that's all we've got. And Media Composer just becomes software and that's it. Katie? Yeah, look, I'm going to give you my personal opinion. My personal opinion. Personal, right? Personal opinion here. Is this personal? I think that, like you say, they're giving them enough rope to hang themselves with. They're saying, if we actually give you the money to do the things that you haven't been able to do, apparently because you don't have the money to do it or the resources to do it, let's see if you can do it. My personal opinion is that Avid as a company, and I love the folks there, they're lovely people, but I do not see them as disruptors, innovators, movers, and shakers. And again, we've talked about it took them 30 years to be able to just do something simple. I think the problem is that they tend to be very tied to their legacy Hollywood old school clients and they don't want to and they don't want to be disruptive movers and shakers and I think the problem is that they're being asked to do that right now and I don't think they can I don't think the current people leading that company have the guts to do it so I, that's what I think. I think the only way that, that they can give themselves enough rope to succeed is if they force the hand of changing leadership at Avid. If they force the hand of changing leadership at Avid and give them the money, someone with some fresh ideas and the balls to actually go and make those things happen, mm. then they can turn the company around. I think that that's my personal opinion is that the injection of cash is very exciting for everybody. And look what all the potential things that Avid could do with their product and their product ecosystem. But I do not personally believe, and let me just put it out there as a challenge because I really would love them to prove me wrong. I don't personally believe that they have the cojones to do it. Well, that goes back to what Michael was saying about the installed base, especially with Media Composer, is so ingrained in kind of what they do that anything, just look at when they changed the interface. It was the right. end of the world. So right. I think that goes back to like how you, know, you got to break some eggs, right? You got to yeah, break yeah. some eggs. And I just yeah. don't think, I, I don't think they have not only the metal to do it, but I also just, I just, I, again, I love you all. And I apologize in advance, <laughs> but I don't think you have the innovative spirit to do it either. Well, I tell you, let, let's table that one and watch because <laughs> it's going to be interesting to see, kind Maybe of see what happens have here. a supplementary episode, like, Ellen Smithy after dark. <laughs> <laughs> Ellen Smithy after dark, and this will be the purple episode. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Speaking of innovation, did you guys see that Vision Pro thing? Yeah. It looks interesting, but it's still something you strap onto your head. So I don't know. I don't know where Look, to it's think. a dev kit. It's not a product for everybody. It, that's right now what it is, a dev kit. It is a product that they've put out there to get people to build things for it. And but when it ships to the consumer, even at $3,500, it's not shipping to the consumer, it's shipping to devs. That's no, no, but like it, eventually it's going to ship to the consumer in that form factor. So, like when it does, what it, it, other than like it's a giant monitor on your face that you don't, I don't know. I just, I still go back to like any major product that I got to put on my head. It is so limited in its, in, in what market it can actually take. Not that they can't make money from it, but mm-hmm. I, I don't know. So in all likelihood, by the time they ship it to consumers, it won't be $3,500. Right now, it's extremely expensive because every single piece of it, right down to the screws, are custom. They don't right. have a factory that can build it yet. So there's that. 
so it won't be as expensive. It'll be at a similar price point, I expect, to other headsets that folks are using. And what I can say from pretty much across the board, people that have experienced it, every skeptic is turned. So I encourage you to keep an open mind until you try it. Mm, it hang is, on, let me grumble. Yeah, it, it, honestly, <laughs> you try it, every skeptic has been turned to the dark side. It is very cool. It is unlike I mean, anything else. It is not a VR headset. It is not an AR system. I think it is that's the important thing. thing it that it's not. Thing. Yeah, but it's it. Gosh, but and it, you're strapping it's on your also head. Version one. Who buys version one? Who gets the very first? If you look at the very first of anything, Tech it's nerds. not right. Yeah, exactly. Tech nerds and devs, but it's not for most of us. You never buy version one of anything. Once you get to version three, four, five, it becomes great. And yeah. so I think, think about it that way. Think about the fact that spatial computing is a whole new thing. You can't imagine how you're going to use it yet. It's, I am on the side of, I think this is actually finally a thing that's going to be a closer step towards the thing that is the thing. And I say, well, I about, I say about these things, like VR is not the thing. It's the thing yeah. that's going to lead us to the thing that's going to lead us to the thing. I think this is finally a product of all the products on the market that I think this has actually made a step. It is the thing after the thing that's the thing before the thing before the thing. Well, the introduction of the term spatial computing was the most interesting thing to me because that was something I hadn't heard before. And I'm like, mm -hmm. oh, when you think about it at like that, it's not VR, it's not AR. Mm -hmm. It is something totally different. And I'm like, okay, I'm definitely willing to give it the benefit of the doubt despite mm -hmm. you're strapping a thing on your face. I can't wait to try one on, Michael. You got one behind you back there? Is that, is that... <laughs> no, I've got everything else, but everything, if you see, I know this is a podcast, oh, yeah. you're not seeing the video, but behind me is what we call user-friendly. And that's just old gear for the past decade. So there is no yes. Vision Pro behind me. What do you think about strapping something on your face though? Like the product itself has to be worn on your head, despite how wonderful it is. I've always believed that since the first flickering images on the first makeshift CRT, we've always looked for something, a more immersive experience, whether it's going from black and white to adding sound to then color to then HD and 3D and HDR. And I've always believed that's what we've wanted, but do the cons or pros outweigh the yeah. pros or the cons, right? Is having this thing strapped to your head is that worth all the benefits? And unfortunately, prior to this, 3D didn't do that enough. The first iteration of Google Glass didn't do it enough. Hmm. So I kind of have to reserve judgment because I want to see what tech, as you pointed out, Katie, the skeptics being swapped, and changing. <laughs> yeah. I, I need to <laughs> yeah. see it so I can yeah. and be in it so I can completely yeah. have an objective viewpoint on that. Look, like anything else, one of the many rules of mass adoption is it has to be that much better than the status quo for people to overcome all of the things that they don't like about it, right? So, it, and it has to be that much better. And the thing is that so far we haven't had anything that is that much better that people can deal with putting a thing on their face. In this case, we are finally seeing something that I think is that much better that a bunch more people are going to be like, yeah, I'm different. Put it on my face to them right now, please. And I think that's really what we're starting to see. And by the time the dev kit has really matured, people have got a lot of really cool uses for it that are ready for consumers. I do think that people are going to say, absolutely strap it on. Well, we shall see. Perhaps I'm still, I'm very skeptical of strapping things on my face, but one day the Vision Pro shipping to consumers might be this podcast. We always do the beginning, end, middle, one of our one cool thing picks. Because if you're new joining us for a one cool thing from the previous month that we've watched, seen, touched, played with, or using, whatever, we, we like to do that in every episode. So I want to start the one cool thing because my one cool thing involves Mr. Michael Kamas. And that is his five things, video cast, podcast, YouTube channel. And his most recent one was about AI post-production, your questions answered. And Michael, it was, a, it was a really good, succinct dive into a lot of those specific things. I think a lot of people are wondering about AI and how we can sort of use it. Like what's the state of it right now? Um, and I would encourage people to check that out and to subscribe to your show. I do know it takes time to put those things together. But yeah, my one cool thing is your AI episode, your recent AI episode of, of Five Things. I just want to say Michael is one cool thing. Oh, yes, indeed one, guys. One, one cool thing. Yeah. Aww. Scott, thank you. Thank you so much for that. 
there are so many videos out there and articles that are clickbait on this new tool will change uh, the industry forever and Hollywood is dead. And then you have editors will be replaced. And then you have folks saying AI is bad and it's plagiarism. And what I wanted to do was find out what questions people actually had, as opposed to assuming what questions people had. So I asked on various social media networks, what concerns do you have? And believe it or not, most questions weren't, where's the tool that'll auto edit for me? It's what are the ethical implications of doing this? And so I put them all into five categories and answered them. And the the reception has been very positive. But the one thing I want to stress is that everything that I talk about is AI being a sidekick as opposed to a replacement. So I encourage everyone to go to fivethingsseries.com and uh, check out the episode. And Michael, thank you for your service. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) What's your one cool thing, Michael? My one cool thing is archaic technology. It's a book. (laughs) I'm told that's how it's pronounced. It's a book called The Innovator's Dilemma. It came out in 97. The author is Clayton Christensen. And basically it's how do you quantify innovation and how can you be innovative? Is there a metric for that? And Clayton goes through various companies that were able to be disruptive or just sustain and comes up with examples as to when you need to listen to your existing client base and when you need to say, look, we're not gonna succeed five years down the road, unless we think what does the market need as opposed to what our clients are asking for. And the book Mm. cites different examples, both in our industry and outside of our industry. And it's a very interesting read. It's a fantastic book. I haven't read it in years. And now that my career has changed over the past several years, it gives insight. And I swear when I was reading this while I was on vacation, I was audibly going, yeah, like loud, out loud. And pissing off everyone else on the vacation. But it's a great book. It's not a difficult read. It's The Innovator's Dilemma by Clayton Christensen. He is amazing. He's inspired me. I quote him all the time. He was the first to define the idea of disruptive innovation. If you're interested in tech, and especially like Michael and I have spent a lot of our careers looking at tech and separating the hype from the real and the bullshit from the actual things. And and so really, I think Clayton Christensen, I think, has guided a lot of that in terms of those of us who think in that way, the futurists and the tech gurus and whatever are often, you know, I think what he's done as an economist (laughs) has actually really guided us in a lot of ways. And and so if you're interested in really understanding how to think about the future and how to separate the hype from the real, Clayton Christensen has some really awesome wisdom. Katie, what's yours? I can't even pronounce it. Oh, mine is so fun. Okay. So my copy is from Sony. It is actually a, it's a consumer product and it is for VTubers. <laughs> it is, it came out last year in Japan only. And I was obsessed. I could not wait to get it in my hands. And the thing is, one of the things that brings me the most joy is taking a consumer product that is not meant for us and turning it into a product that makes workflows or production better right? That, I love doing that. I'm the kind of person that takes an instrument and plays it the way it's not supposed to be played. So <laughs> I love doing that with technology. And my copy, as soon as I saw it, I was like, we've got to have that. We've got to have that on, on productions. What it is, it's Markless Motion Capture. It is designed for playing VR dance video games, right? That's very specific. So, it, yeah. So that's what it's designed for. But basically you have these tiny little pucks that are like the size of a quarter and they sit on little wrist straps that you put around your wrists, your ankles, you clip one onto your waistband and you stick one on your head, on a headband. And Scott, hang on, Scott, will you do that? Another thing we got to put on our head. Listen, it's a headband. You can put it on a hat for goodness oh, sake. Not as bad. It's, it is not the height of fashion. I tell you that. A lot of me and my colleagues have been walking around work looking real silly, looking like an <laughs> 80s tennis player with this thing on. But You strap it on and it basically, the cool thing about it, it's calibration is literally you stand there and you take one step forward and it's calibrated. It does extremely accurate real-time motion capture. And what it also does is it's not a SaaS product. So you don't have to worry about security or anything like that. Bluetooth connects to your phone and then it can pass through your phone to your PC And what we're able to do is we're able to real-time puppeteer characters in Unity or Unreal. 
and do oh, wow. real-time previs that way. And so what we're able to do, which is super amazing, instead of feeding an anime girl into a dance on a VR, essentially, what we're doing is we can create a scene and we can have a character in that scene and we can live puppeteer that character in that scene. And we can give the creatives the opportunity to show, not tell what they're trying to do. And again, we can then show that to the other creatives and say, this is the intention, right? And it's super, super cool. And it's so simple. You know, a lot of the other systems, what we usually would have to do in order to achieve that is suit someone up, right? Bring them into a stage, suit them up, say, show us what you want. And often creatives want to show you what they want. They're like, that's not what that's supposed to look like. It's supposed to move like this. And so we have to suit them up, bring them onto a stage and do that. Now we can just give them this tiny little package and say, put the wrist strap on, put the headband on, and now you can show us exactly what it is you want to do. It's cool. And the it's $449. Yeah. Like that's right? the, and you right? can get, I guess, take this data and import it into various. You can get, yeah. And the thing is that you can also, it's full on capture data. You can bring it into any DC app as motion capture data. You got an FBX, it's right there. And so it's very cool. And and also, it's also showing us where I love to use technology for good. And so there's also been some interest, interestingly, from some of the folks doing medical uh, research to look at what we're doing with motion capture for helping Parkinson's patients. So well, there's neat. a little bit of an extra cool thing there. But I've been playing around a lot with this Mokopi. I'm obsessed. I love it. I have six packages of it now, six sets, <laughs> because I just wanted everybody to have a crack at it. It's so much fun. And it's just so easy. It's not the most accurate you'll ever see. But because it doesn't do hands and fingers and faces and things like that. But if you're looking for this kind of real quick and dirty, like previs animation, if you want to do that sort of thing, again, there's people like Wonder Studios doing amazing, like super more accurate stuff. But if you're looking for simple and secure and really just easy, an idiot could make it work. I think it's cool. I'm really into it. Big fan. I think it's but it's. It sounds like there's really nothing else like it out there. And we'll put a link in the mm-hmm. show notes. And for 449 bucks, you can add the card, three, three easy 30-day returns, financing option available. So if you got to yeah. finance your um, copy and uh, fast free shipping. So, that, so there you go. It's cool. It's a lot of fun. It's definitely my one cool thing. And like I said, it's not the thing, but it's the thing that gets us to the thing. And I'm a big fan. Nice. It looks I, like I want to find a reason for me to buy it. Like my day-to-day work doesn't require it, but it's like a 3D printer. Like I want right? to find a reason to get it. <laughs> entertainment value, Michael. It's okay to buy things for entertainment value. Interactive. Okay, next time five things will be virtual. Oh, uh, I'll do a deliver with uh, via an avatar that matches my motions of standing there. Nice. Look, it, it, look, there are markless motion capture systems out there that use a phone or whatever that, you know, out there. But this one is different. There isn't anything like it. It's like a hybrid between a suit and a full-on put an iPhone in front of you. And there are certainly a lot of interesting use cases for it. Nice. Thanks, Sony, for bringing it to the U.S. With that, you know what? I think we can call this first episode of season two of the Alan Smithy podcast done. I appreciate Katie Michael. Thanks for joining us. And thanks to all the listeners who listened last season, last year. Yes, last season. We'll leave it at that. And we're happy to be back for the second season. And hopefully you'll continue and tweet us or access, whatever you want to call it, email, (laughs) Instagram, you know, communicate however we can. And we'll see you all next time on the uh, episode two of season two of the Alan Smithy podcast. Thanks, y'all. Thank you.